and Val is going to come forward and read to us before Neil comes to speak. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, 
And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Thanks very much, Val. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. As we um, come to uh, God's word this morning, let's, uh, let's pray. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, do pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive from you now. We do thank you for your, your inspired word. Thank you that it is useful for us. And we do pray this morning as we hear from you that you would equip us for every work that you'd have us do. And that we will be your faithful servants. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, in case you weren't here, we looked at the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, a man full of the Holy Spirit who wasn't afraid of standing up for the truth, wasn't afraid of confronting the the Jewish leaders in terms of the rebelliousness of their hearts towards God. I mean, you saw that he was so focused on Christ and his glory that his own safety was unimportant. Even up to the end, he was able to reflect the glory of Christ and demonstrate a willingness to forgive his oppressors. What happens next, as we see this morning, is a great crackdown on the church. Have a look at the beginning of chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women 
and put them in prison. It seems like a pretty desperate situation for this young church. There are not many believers, just a few thousand. It wouldn't take much to wipe out the church. I've mentioned um, this book coming up on the screen before. It's called The Insanity of God. It's about a couple of missionaries who uh, worked in Somalia for, for many years and witnessed the destruction of the church, reduced to a handful of believers. And at the end of it, they were um, just so desperate, uh, they wondered what to do next. What could God possibly have in store for them? Uh, but God sent them to, uh, to different countries where people were being persecuted for their faith. And they just listened to the stories and were inspired by what they heard. One of those people they met was Dmitri, who lived in a former um, Soviet Union country. Uh, he'd gone to church as a child. Um, but as communism took over the country, churches were shut down, pastors were imprisoned uh, and killed. As he um, grew up and had his own family, the nearest church to where he lived was the three days walk away. So they couldn't really get to that very often. So he started a time of family worship in his home. Before long, other neighbours joined. And they grew to 25 people, and they started to get threats from the authorities. When the church grew to 50, he and his wife were fired from their jobs, and their children were expelled from school. When it grew to 150, he was taken off to prison, a thousand kilometres away, where he was tortured for the next 17 years. He was confined to a tiny cell, but each morning he would start by singing a hymn, much to the annoyance of the 1,500 other inmates who were in there with him. He would find scraps of paper and write little Bible verses on them that he could remember from memory and stick them on the wall in his cell until the prison guards noticed and they took them down and took him out and beat him. But what was hardest for him during this was not knowing uh, how his family were. And uh, what eventually pushed him... Uh, to the edge, was being told that his wife had been murdered and his children had been taken away by the state. At that point, he said uh, uh, he would agree to sign a confession renouncing his faith and um, so he could be free to go and find his children. However, that night, his family, who were actually still alive, they were still well, they sensed through the Spirit his despair and they prayed for him. And he heard through the Spirit his family praying for him. So he knew they were well. And so the following morning, he refused to sign anything. Uh, and not long after that, he was threatened with execution. And uh, he was dragged from his cell to the courtyard. Uh, but before he got there, all of the other 1,500 inmates stood in their cells and sang that same hymn that he'd been singing every morning. The prison guards let go of him, um, stepped back in terror and said, Who are you? And he replied, I'm a son of the living God. Jesus is his name. He was returned to a cell and sometime later released to return to his family. What we're seeing in this passage this morning, what has been seen countless times in history, and what we still see going on today um, in the world is that persecution brings growth. God uses the persecution, the suffering of his people to bring joy and blessing to the world. And so we shouldn't despair when we see setbacks or what appear to be setbacks to the growth of the church because God will use them as opportunities to achieve his purposes and to display his wisdom, his power, and his love. 
Let's go back, though, first of all, to chapter 1. We started our series. And remember that verse 8 of chapter 1, a key verse for the whole book of Acts? And it says there, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, the apostles have already been witnessing to the death and resurrection of, uh, of Jesus in Jerusalem. Peter has preached uh, to the crowds. Thousands were converted. We saw that a few weeks back. Last week, we saw Stephen witnessing to, again, to the people of Jerusalem. And you might have been thinking, well, when are they going to plan their mission trip to Judea and Samaria? Well, the timing might not have been quite as we expected or as they expected. We don't see them coming up with a, a mission strategy, allocating different geographical areas to different apostles, getting them to find a team and go out, loading up the donkey with tracks um, and taking them to the different villages. Maybe they would have got around to that eventually. But as it happens, God uses persecution to enable his people to achieve the mission that he had already given them. Persecution breaks out immediately after the death of Stephen. Saul and his soldiers, we're told, go from house to house, dragging off men and women, putting them in prison. So there's no time here to actually plan to do anything. Hardly any time to pack their bags. They're fleeing for their lives. They scatter in all directions throughout Judea and Samaria. First individual who is mentioned is Philip. He's one of those who is described in chapter 6 of being full of the spirit and wisdom. And the place he goes to is a city in Samaria where we're told he proclaims the Messiah. Now it's easy to read that and miss the significance of the place that he goes to, Samaria. That was actually an incredibly brave place to go to. And I think it'd be helpful just to mention the history here if you're not familiar with it. Because it goes back a thousand or so years earlier uh, when the nation of Israel was divided uh, between the northern kingdom, the ten tribes who went to the northern kingdom, and the two tribes um, in the southern kingdom, tribes of Judah and Benjamin, which includes the, the descendants of, uh, of David. And that relationship between the two became uh, worse over time. It became worse when Samaria was captured by Assyria in 722 B.C., and thousands of its inhabitants were deported, and thousands of Assyrians were brought in to that, that area. In the 4th century BC, the relationship worsened when the Samaritans built a rival temple in, in Mount Gerizim, and they dismissed all the, the Old Testament scriptures with the exception of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. So that's the history, and yet when Jesus came to earth... He actually showed great sympathy for the people of Samaria. Do you remember the story of him at the, the well with a Samaritan woman? She said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a, for a drink? And as it said in the Bible, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So for the gospel to go to Samaria and the Samaritans to be given the chance to be welcomed into the kingdom of God is a massive thing. Philip, we're told, did many signs and wonders. He, he cast out evil spirits. He healed the lame. But these were just signs and wonders because they pointed 
to the Messiah, the most important thing he had come to do was proclaim Jesus Christ. And it's as people responded to that good news of salvation in Jesus that we are told there was great joy in that city. The word of God may bring persecution. It may make life difficult. But it also brings great joy. Because joy is not dependent on our material comfort, our well-being. It comes from knowing that we are right with God. What about this bit, though, about the Holy Spirit? What is going on here? Why did Peter and John need to go to Samaria and pray for the new believers to receive the Holy Spirit? Surely we're told that if uh, we are a believer, we've already received the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 2, when Peter preached the crowd, and they'd asked him, what shall we do? This is what he said. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here in chapter 8? Well, maybe they're not real believers at that point, but we're told quite clearly that they had accepted the word of God. They're described as new believers, so that doesn't seem very likely. Maybe they received some sort of second blessing when they receive the Holy Spirit. But again, we're told, as we've just seen, that if you repent and be baptized, you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think the most probable explanation is that this is not meant to be normative for all Christians at all times. You don't have to be prayed for by an apostle to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the fact that this is a massively important and unique historic event. After a thousand years of division, Between the Jews and the Samaritans, God is bringing them together into his kingdom. The kingdom of God inaugurated by Jesus Christ himself. And so to have two apostles uh, go to Samaria and pray for the Holy Spirit to come on them is to authenticate their faith, is to welcome them into the kingdom and ask for God's blessing on them. In the next few chapters, we will witness an even bigger event when um, the gospel goes out to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And God's promise of blessings through the, to the world through Israel becomes uh, fulfilled. In chapter 10, we will see, as we're told, the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, that is, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. But the first stop for the gospel is Samaria. And it's exciting stuff, isn't it? No wonder there was great joy in that city. No wonder that Peter and John then go on preaching the gospel in many other cities in Samaria. The question I want us just to think about this morning is, are we surprised by the means God chooses to achieve his purposes? History has shown that actually the greatest enemy to the spread of the gospel is not, as we might think, physical persecution, but physical comfort. So often the prosperity that we think would help the gospel produces the opposite. Produces spiritual apathy, prayerlessness, self-centeredness, fear, anxiety. Persecution and hardship, on the other hand, confront us with a choice. Is Christ a nice little add-on to my life? 
Or is he my reason for being? Am I putting my trust in my comfort and well-being? Or am I putting my trust in Jesus Christ? Is he the true Lord of my life? The devil doesn't mind if we call ourselves Christians, if our faith hasn't taken over our lives. The world doesn't mind if we call ourselves Christians, if we keep it to ourselves. The Archbishop of Canterbury recently mentioned a a conversation that uh, he had had with a senior politician. Uh, uh, This uh, politician said to him, are you seriously going to tell me that I don't call someone an extremist if they say that their faith is more important than the rule of law. The Archbishop said, I took a deep breath and said, well, you've got a real problem here. Because for me personally, my faith is more important than the rule of law. So you've got an extremist sitting in here with you. We do not believe as Christians that the rule of law outweighs everything else. We believe that the kingdom of God outweighs everything else persecution will test us as to whether we truly believe that the kingdom of god outweighs everything else god uses persecution to achieve his purposes secondly god uses surprising people to achieve his purposes have a look back at uh, verse one on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in jerusalem And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And verse 4, those who had been scattered, preached, or actually proclaimed the word wherever they went. Now you've got 12 apostles here who've spent three years being trained uh, by Jesus Christ himself. These are his his close um, uh, followers. Now if you wanted to spread the gospel throughout Judea and Samaria... What would you do? Surely you would take your key guys and send them out with teams, wouldn't you? But they're the only ones we're told who don't go. They stay in Jerusalem. We're not told why. Maybe it's to, to hold the fort there, keep the church, lead the church in Jerusalem. But maybe it's also to, put, to, to make the point that God chooses um, others to do, his, to do his work. It doesn't depend on these men to achieve his purposes. He can achieve his purposes through ordinary men and women. And we're told that those who've been scattered preached the word wherever they went. They didn't have to do a training course on evangelism before they went. They didn't have time to even think about it. They just went. And when they went, they told people about Jesus. They shared their faith with those they met. And there are different ways in which this um, evangelism is described we quickly look through this chapter in verse 4. It's called preaching the word, proclaiming the word. Verse 5 is proclaiming the Messiah. Verse 12 is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 25 is proclaiming the word of the Lord and testifying about Jesus, preaching the gospel. Or simply put in verse 34, it's simply telling the good news about Jesus. And the good news, the gospel, is the same good news that we proclaim today. It's the good news that we were made for a relationship with God. We've turned our backs on God and followed our own ways. 
But Jesus has made it possible for us to be reconciled with God, to enjoy his love forever as we put in our trust in Jesus Christ as our saviour and follow him as our Lord. It's a simple message. And it's not the complexity of the message that the people don't understand. It's whether they want to accept Jesus as king of their lives or whether they want to be the own king of their lives. And that's the problem with Simon the sorcerer. We haven't got time to look at him in much detail this morning. But what impresses him is not the good news about Jesus Christ. It's the signs and the wonders that Philip is performing. He's more interested in being able to perform those signs and wonders himself so that people are impressed with him. But as Peter says, his heart is not right before God. He's still captive to sin. He's captive to the desire to glorify himself rather than glorify Jesus. Well, we talked about God using surprising people to achieve his purposes, and we're introduced in this chapter to a very, very surprising person that God chooses to use, and that is Saul. At the end of chapter 7, if you look back, we have the first mention of Saul. In verse 57 of this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at Stephen dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul is a nasty piece of work. He's an enemy of God. His sole aim is to destroy God's people, to wipe them out. But God is powerful enough to change the heart of his greatest enemy. And the question, I think, for us is, do we believe that? Or do we question his power, his, his grace, his mercy that can change the heart of someone like Saul? Are there those we feel who are beyond the help of God, who are so stuck in their ways they cannot possibly change? The story of Saul's conversion is an amazing story, which we'll come back to after Christmas. But let's finish with the other story of the Ethiopian eunuch, because um, this is a great little story, verse 26 onwards. One of the key um, themes of the book of Acts is, as we've seen already, the work of the Spirit. The, uh, the book opens with the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. It's the Spirit who gives the believers the courage to, to proclaim the gospel. It's those who are full of the spirits that, that the apostles chose to serve the early church. The spirit is given as a gift to the believers in Samaria, as we've just seen. And in our final <coughs> little story this morning of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we see again the spirit at work. Having proclaimed the gospel in Samaria, an angel of the Lord, we're told, tells Philip, goes south, verse 26, to the road the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
Not very precise instructions, really. Um, But because Philip is full of the Spirit, he is completely obedient, and he follows those instructions. On his way, we are told he meets an interesting character, an Ethiopian eunuch in charge of all the treasury of the uh, Kandake, the queen of the Ethiopians. He is your... um, Modern-day Chancellor of the Exchequer, your Philip Hammond, if you like, the Queen's right-hand man. He's been to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he's sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah. And at that point, the Holy Spirit tells Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. That's all. No reason why or what to do when he gets there. But as he gets close, he hears this man reading, reading out loud from the book of Isaiah. And at that point, Philip realizes why the Spirit has directed him to this unlikely person in this unlikely place. He's chosen Philip to explain to him the gospel. Philip asks him very simply, do you understand what you're reading? He may not have been sure what sort of a response he would have uh, uh, got, but uh, given the Spirit was directing him, it's not surprising that it's a positive response. He says, how can I unless someone explains to me? So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. If you're trying to picture the scene, this may be something like what it would have looked like. He invites him up into his chariot to explain what he's reading. And we're told... The passage of scripture he was reading was from Isaiah, Isaiah 53. He was led like a lamb, like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now the the eunuch here is, working out what is this all about? Who is this person who's being described here? And so Philip explains to him that this is a prophecy about Jesus himself. He would probably have explained to him actually what the verses just before that in Isaiah meant as well. The verses that say he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. He would probably have explained that the prophecy had been fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross and that forgiveness was available to all. And Ethiopian's eyes are opened immediately by the Spirit and he asks, what can stand in the way of me being baptised? Which reminds us that baptism is the first thing we do when we become a Christian. It's not some sort of thing you do when you feel that you're, um, you're good enough or you know enough. It's the first step of obedience. And the immediate effect on this Ethiopian was joy. The same joy experienced by those in Samaria who'd heard the good news. We're told he went on his way rejoicing. His life had been changed by Christ. The Lord is spreading his gospel to the nations. And this one man may be the start of the evangelization of the whole country of Ethiopia. As for Philip, where we're told he was suddenly taken away by the Spirit to go and preach the good news elsewhere. 
So what does that passage tell us? Well, firstly, it tells us that conversion is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who uses people as his instruments to, to bring people to faith. It's the Spirit who gives people a restless desire to find God, to know him. And it's the Spirit who opens people's eyes to see Jesus and who comes in and remains with them and fills them with joy. Now, if we're believers here this morning, we may not always get a direct command from the Spirit to to approach someone. Most evangelism we just do because uh, we love Jesus and he told us to go and make disciples. But we may be at risk, I think, sometimes of thinking we can do God's work ourselves in our power if we just plan it well enough, if we've got the resources. Sometimes the Holy Spirit may actually tell us to do things or to lead us to people we may never even have thought of. And so we need to remain open to his leading. And the question I'd like to leave you with as we come to the end is, really, how would you like to experience the Spirit's power in your life? Maybe it's in a desire to be obedient to God, to stand firm in your faith, to resist temptation. Maybe it's in a heart of praise and worship of God, just to fill you with a a sense of admiration and joy in the Lord. Maybe it's in a heart of love and compassion for those in need and to have your eyes open to the needs around you. Maybe it's in a courage to tell people about Jesus and take risks in his name. Maybe it's in the gift of spiritual discernment or or speaking words of prophecy into people's situations. Maybe being aware of where the Spirit is already working. Maybe it's in a desire to be healed of your own physical illness. Or as we come to the end of our service, we're going to sing a a final song. Let's sing it um, as a prayer. And uh, let's ask the Lord to be filled with his spirit. The song is Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. We pray that our souls would be willing.